So, Kim Mahood. Kim's the author of three books. The first one, Craft for a Dry Lake, won the New South Wales Premier's Award and the Age Book of the Year. Her second one, Position Doubtful, cemented her, in the, cemented her place in the pantheon of essential writers for understanding anything at all, really, about the centre of this great continent. And she's here tonight to speak about this new collection of essays, Wandering with Intent, which covers a lot of the things she's been doing over the last 20 years. Kim grew up in the 50s and 60s on Mongrel Downs, a cattle station on the edge of the Tanami Desert. Much has changed in those parts since then. The land's been handed back to the traditional owners. The mining companies have arrived. Aboriginal art has flourished. Kim, however, still returns there every year. In fact, she told me this afternoon she's heading back up there in about a week's time. Uh, she's a, not simply a marvellous writer, she's an artist in her own right, re recently focusing a lot on what she refers to as map-making, and we'll be returning to that in a moment. And it involves uh, a quote that I've put in some of the publicity, but I'm going to read again because I like it so much. Um, it involves what she refers to as ground-truthing. And my version of that, she writes, begins with the physical attributes of place and moves on to what's happened there. It puts people into place, which brings into play science, stories, husbandry, history, metaphor, and myth. This form of mapping has been called various things, co-mapping, cross-cultural mapping, counter-mapping, radical cartography. The wordsmith in me likes the flamboyant suggestiveness of radical cartography, but my bullshit detector finds it pretentious. There's, n there's nothing radical about what I do. The only surprising thing about it is that we haven't done it. It hasn't been done before. Now, Wandering with Intent, we've just found, Trini texted me while I was sitting here doing the sound check, Wandering with Intent has just been shortlisted for the age book of the year for nonfiction. Please welcome Kim Mahood to play. Now, I know we're here to talk about wandering with intent, but I think we'd be very remiss if we didn't start a bit earlier, right back with Craft for a Dry Lake. This is a memoir about growing up in the central desert country in various different places. But it's my understanding that your earliest years were actually spent around Fink. What was your family doing there? Uh, well, actually, the very early years were, ironically, in the Tanami. Um, my dad was acting superintendent of a, um, an Aboriginal, they called them settlements back in the 50s, called uh, Hooker Creek, which these days is called La Jamanu. Um, and I, my mum was in Perth. I was born. At three weeks old, she took me to Hooker Creek. Um, and, uh, you know, this was very shocking to all her sort of friends and relations that she was taking this brand new baby out to the middle of the desert. Uh, and these, you know, wild Aboriginal people who back then they had just pretty much come in from the desert. So, so my very early years were actually on a sequence of remote communities. Um, and it's probably where, I mean, the stories my, I grew up with that my parents told me about those years have sort of grounded, um, you know, what I've written since, which, which was always about the mismatch between, you know, the intentions of the white Australian government policies being imposed on, you know, the desert people. Um, and so that sort of underpins, I guess, what I've been writing about. Um, in, in, you know, the last 30-odd years. 
But uh, we then moved to Fink. My dad uh, left the Department of Native Affairs, as it was then called, and uh, became a stock inspector, uh, which meant going out to the big cattle stations and, you know, testing cattle for cattle diseases and that sort of thing. So that's what we were doing. And my mum was teaching, you know. Even when you were out at Fink, because I know she mm, taught mm. French in Alice Springs mm, later on. This is, in fact, I, it's the final essay in the book references how she began the school in Fink as well. So oh, okay. That's yeah. mm. I mean, it, your mother and father were very remarkable people in themselves, mm. and that, that they wanted mm, to be. They, they found they found themselves very constrained by the Australia of the forties and fifties, mm. and. They, would, they felt they could kind of be themselves out in that part of the world. Well, my dad was uh, grew up in uh, Western Sydney, um, and he was he was a very bright kid. But he he was his family were on the dole, um, and he left home at fifteen and started heading north. So by the time he was seventeen, he was working on. Um, what they used to call potty dodgers blocks in Queensland um, and they were often small holdings taken up by Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal families um, and they tended to steal their core herd from the big company properties. So, so my, my dad's beginning as a, as a stockman was... Um, cattle, you know, cattle, cattle theft, theft. Rust, cattle, rustling. Well, rustling. Well, they, they called it potty dodging, which meant you stole the unbranded stock, which couldn't be traced. So my dad from there moved on over into the Territory and, and uh, in his early 20s was a head stockman for Victoria Verdowns. My mum, on the other hand, uh, was, went to university in the 40s, which was pretty unusual. And uh, she, she became a journalist. So she was actually... She went north because she couldn't go overseas. Post-war, it was very hard to go overseas. She had been learning... Um, Arabic and Russian and so on, because she did want to be a spy, but um, <laughs> she wasn't. She wasn't able to fulfil her her sort of first choice. <laughs> so she became a, a journalist and and. Uh, did, did she did she have a talent for deceit? No, 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 she didn't. No, no, everything my mum did, it was really obvious. You know? she, she, she was the least, she, had, she was absolutely unable to manipulate people. It was so transparent, it was hilarious. So she would have been a terrible spy. So, uh, yeah, so they actually met. Mum was, um, uh, she was still sending pieces back to the West Australian uh, and she ended up taking a job in the store at Victoria River Downs because the storekeeper had been taken out with, um, he'd been sort of, they didn't fly them out in those days, been sort of driven out with delirium tremens um, and nobody knew where he was getting the alcohol from. Anyway, my mum's first day in the store, she could hear this strange sort of bubbling sound and, and tracked it down and it was, a, it was a kerosene tin, which in those days they were sort of 10 gallon kerosene tins, I think. Uh, in which he was brewing this concoction of um, dried fruit and sugar and goodness knows what else, um, and was, you know, tippling away on that until he completely sort of went bonkers. And so, so, so my mum got the job in the store and my parents met and that was that, really. Yeah. Mm. But being born in a place like that or, or going out there when you're three mm. weeks old, there's something... There's something 
happens on a kind of an atomic or a molecular I level so, yeah. to, to yeah, yourself, that, yeah. that those places... Mm. I, mean, I was talking to a man here a few months ago and he'd, he'd been born in Darwin and he said he loved the heat, you know, he just loved those, those, the wet season up there. It just made him mm. feel come alive. It's that thing that it, it, somehow or other where you're, where you're brought up it, it builds this connection to country. Look, I think in my case it was even... I mean, my mum had absolutely no experience of babies. There'd been no intention whatsoever to get pregnant immediately, but, you know, back in the 50s, she didn't have a whole lot of control over that. Um, so she arrived in Hooker Creek and the Aboriginal woman who had already self, um, you know, promoted to herself to being the housekeeper also took one look at my mum and the new baby and said, you know, give me the baby. You know nothing. <laughs> so, so, so my, you know, the first year of my life, essentially, I, you know, her name was my first word. You know, not mum or dad, but Nancy or Nanty. And um, I guess, you know, you get wired, uh, you know, in in those early early years, in Indeed. a different way. So I guess, um, you know, plastic as the brain is, I think there's still an imprint from that very early experience. So, so moving on a little bit to the family history, you, you, you move from Fink back into Alice Springs, but then um, your father gets, um, he, well, he finds out about Tanami Downs, Mo Mongrel Downs, but the, in order for him to find out about that, he got called to do something, which oh, was look, quite... Oh, look, it was, yeah, it was a, um, the, the canning stock route had closed at the end of the 50s. So cattle that were being taken down the canning to um, the mining towns were, um, that, that had come to an end and there was a sort of cattle stations that, they're the places I still revisit in the southeast Kimberley, um, where the cattle, it didn't make sense to take them north because they ended into tick country and were quarantined, so they were looking for an alternative stock route to the south, um, which was to somehow connect cattle up, bring them through to Alice Springs. So at that stage, my dad was, um, he was a field stock inspector, so he was on that first sort of um, cross the Tanami search for a way to bring cattle overland from the southeast Kimberley. And in the process, there's this pocket of grasslands that's surrounded by, you know, desert country, uh, which um, in partnership with the, the um, people who owned the stations in the Kimberley, uh, you know, took it up. This was 90, early 1960s. So, uh, yeah, we went out there back then. So, without meaning to be rude, I wanted to ask a question. Was it really a good idea to take cattle out there? I mean, was it a viable proposition? Well, it's still going. You know, it's, it's one of the very few that... Um, look, yes, it's probably um, whether it was a good idea. I mean, I wouldn't do it myself now um, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, the station... It's kind of interesting that the Walpuri people who um, are the traditional owners of that country, they had kind of shifted into the various... Um, they'd gone to the mines first and then to various communities, uh, Balgo, Hooker Creek, Lanjamanu and um, Yundamu. So it's because, you know, country without any permanent surface waters. Um, 
has water through it in you know after the wet season. But so people were not um, you know they were not actively living there. Um, it I think initially the idea was it would be a staging property for bringing the cattle through. So you know they would sort of fatten up there and then you know take them to, and and that was. You know, the driving only happened for another few years and then, you know, they started to sort of truck cattle. But, um, you know, the, it, that land was, that station was purchased for the traditional owners in the early 90s. It's been gone through various iterations. Um, it's now being leased back to the only other white family that were living in the Tanama at the same time. And... Um, like we were the Mahoods of Mungrel Downs, their surname was Savage. So they were the Savages of Superjack and the Mahoods of Mungrel Downs. I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? <laughs> so, so one of the youngest Savage boys is now, well, you know, men is now leasing the station from the Warbury traditional owners. So it's a really yeah. interesting reorganising of the, you know, the, the politics of the desert. So, so are, they, are the savages friends of the darkies and the sambos? <laughs> I told Stephen earlier about um, some families who live on Billaluna, Aboriginal families whose surnames are Darkie and Sambo. Um, and a friend of mine who was doing his um, PhD up in, in Balgo uh, went back to Canberra and inadvertently mentioned his, um, you know, knowing the darkies. And it just, you know, he said, you could have heard a pin drop at the dinner party. And even though he said, it's their surname, is what they're called. It was like, you know. So, so yes, the savages, the darkies, mungle downs, whatever. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know. So, but you now go back there. Sorry, I, 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 useless yep. aside there. But you go back there every year for, mm. you know, almost half the year to live through the winter months, yeah? I don't spend all the time there anymore. I did for probably a decade, but my work is taking me to other parts of the desert as well. But I always at least go back and spend a month, you know, catch up with people. Yeah. So. Um, and uh, you write in, uh, in, I think it's in, I look, I don't know, I've been reading so much of writing, but I don't know where it is, but there's a, a quote that you say, I think it's the beginning of Position Doubtful, you say, you remark that what drives me is not a desire to help. Mm. To, to, or to fix or change, but to understand something about my country. And this gives you a kind of freedom to engage in a way that many other white people don't. Mm, mm. Well, I have a... I mean, for the people out there, both, you know, the, the savages and the darkies, um, <laughs> they... Um, it, there's a... It makes perfect sense that I would come back to visit the country. Yeah. Um, that that's a given. So, so I don't have to explain to anybody what I'm doing there. Um, yeah. You know, people say, "Oh, welcome home." You know, yeah. coming back to country and family. So I have this um, freedom, which is uh, and and a reason which is very unusual. Sometimes there's work to do. You know, I'm so familiar with. Uh, everything, particularly the little community I go to called Mullen. Um, you know, I've done so many projects there over the years, I can just kind of drop in and whatever's happening I can contribute to because I know yeah. everybody, yeah. I know where all the bodies are buried, so to speak. You know, I am, in a sense, the corporate memory because there have been so many different, um, you know, the, 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 the school changeover, the, I mean, you know, running the office, the... 
uh, coordinator of the Indigenous Ranger Program, you know, they've been changing, 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 but the Aboriginal people are still the same and I'm still the same. So, you know, I can basically go out there and turn my hand to most things. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's changing. It's changing in very different ways from, I think, the from what white Australia assumes is going on out there, whether it's they think nothing's changing or that people are becoming, um, you know, more assimilated, if you like. It's, that's not what's happening, you know. It's going somewhere else. And for me to continue to keep a handle on that, um, I, that's one of the reasons I go back. Um, I mean, I missed the COVID year, 2020. That was the one year I haven't been back in nearly 30 years. And just that missing that one year, I, I felt my grasp of what's happening slipping away. So it was really important to get back out there and just, you know, anchor myself in what is going on. And, and, um, and yes, yeah, so, so that's... I, I personally don't feel that I have any idea of what needs to be done in order to fix things. I don't have a clue, you know. The maps I make are a form of of cross-cultural communication, to me that seems the best place to start, is to try yeah. to sort of get on the same page, somehow the same ground, so to speak. Yeah. But what you do with that is anybody's guess, really, you know. Uh, look, I'd like to come back to the map making in a minute, but I was, I was very taken by one of the most famous essays in this book here that... No, it's not, it's not a, a new essay, but it came mm. out a few years ago, which is called Gardias Are Like Toyotas. Mm. Um, uh, and you follow, the essay follows a, a young idealistic white woman going to live in a Western Desert Aboriginal community. And the essay graphically illustrates the dysfunction about the interface between the whites and the blacks, but also the dysfunction within each of them. But um, in the collection of... Uh, in the collection of essays, you don't simply stop there. In a later essay, The Man in the Log, you remark that you have over the years looked for examples to run counter mm. to this mm. kind of dysfunctional narrative. So it's a kind of long question, but what I'd like you to do is possibly if you could talk to the audience about what Gardias are like Toyotas is about, and then do the, tell us about the counter narrative as well. I'll do my best. Um, well, Gadia like Toyota's, in fact, that that's little, that little story you meant, that's sort of sandwiched in the middle of the essay as a kind of a fictionalised version of what I was witnessing. Um, what's really interesting, because the characters are all uh, in that section in the middle of the essay, the whole, those of you haven't, who don't know it, the whole of the um, title is Gadia, which means white people, are like Toyotas. When they break down, we get another one. Um, and, and it's literally what happens, even now, you know. I mean, I'm constantly getting um, notes from people who've just gone out to work in a remote community. The essay is now, for most organisations, um, part of their, um, you know, they, it's handed to the new person, and sometimes they give it to them before they go, more often it's about three months in when they're starting to melt down. <laughs> it's like, read this. It's not just you. This is what happens, you know. Um, but that sort of fictionalised segment, it's really quite entertaining to me, the number of people who come up and say, you based that character on me, didn't you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know whether it's Ben, the kind of really cool white guy, or whether it's the really, you know, the, the mixed-race woman who takes the motor car, or, you know, whether it's 
the New Gutter, as she's called, because people recognise themselves um, in... It, it is, it's a world that creates these situations uh, that bring out, you know, once, as I say, your strengths and your weaknesses tend to be amplified and everybody becomes a kind of extreme version of themselves. Um, the other thing I think that happens for white people who are not familiar with what they're going into is they're often so confronted by what they experience of the Aboriginal world, they just don't know what to do with it, so they dump all that anxiety on the nearest white person who is their boss or their co-worker. So people who actually have heaps in common hate each other with passion. And that becomes, you know, the, the, the white world out there becomes riven with factions. Um, so this is, and, and this continues, you know, this is not, it's not getting any better. It still happens. Um, there are some amazing white people also. It's like the friends that I have made over the years, um, they're like, we call them their, their war zone friendships, you know, the fact that you've become your best self in that environment means that, you know, that's who we've met out there. You know, we've seen that person under extreme pressure sort of come out not turning into a monster um, and trying to sort of, you know, kneecap the person working next to them. Um, anyway, the, the essay went viral um, shortly after Griffith Review published it and has continued to circulate. It's been about a decade now. Um, and it was, you know, it's probably still the thing that people who haven't read anything else of mine will, yeah. will comment on. So there was a point where I thought, well, it isn't all like that. There are extraordinary things that happen where you have all the things that need to be in place and aren't, which are, you know, in that sort of situation, which are long trusted relationships, people who stay the distance, the white, white people who stay the distance, who, who don't go in with kind of, um, you know, idealised aspirations um, and who just build, build these relationships. Um, it's also about mutual respect, you know, both ways. Um, a capacity to have a conversation at a very sophisticated level, which of course in, say, the man in the log story, is where uh, very good interpreters are brought into the into the negotiation. So the you know the Anangu women are able to think and speak at a very sophisticated level in their own language and have that sort of interpreted. And then there were mental health experts who were also you know having very sophisticated notions around brain you know the effect of trauma on the brain and so on. So, and over the long term too, you know, something that instead of coming in with a great idea and abandoning it after 12 months, this, this project was sustained over a number of years. Um, and, you know, the, I guess to cut, you know, cut a long, long story short, the, um, the notion of, um, I think, you know, one of the white guys involved was a Jungian psychiatrist and he told people, you know, played out the myth of Dionysus as a sort of example of, you know, um, white issues with alcohol, for a start, um, but also how it was this embedded myth, like a kind of white fellow dreaming story. And the local, the Yanunga women were both fascinated that, A, the white fellows had a grog story, um, and, and that they also had a type of dreaming. So they took it back 
and discussed it and looked for one of their own dreaming stories they could use as a metaphor for what was going on with their own people. So to me, this is, this, it was such an example of what can happen, you know, at that interface where really, really different ways of, you know, seeing the world come together in this incredibly productive way. And yeah, I guess I've had the good fortune over time to just have those sorts of experiences. And, you know, you kind of think, what might it have been like if we'd been able to have those conversations from the beginning? But, you know, that was never going to happen. So. Yeah. But it also speaks to the wisdom of you going back there every year because mm. it maintains that connection. It gives the people who live there a sense of your commitment to what it is that's going on. You do tell a story in Position Doubtful again ab about the loss of your dog slippers, mm. which, mm. Um, which uh, I mean, I'm a sucker for dogs. Everybody who knows me, I'm a that's sucker That's made for... strong men cry, that story. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it, it, it has a kind of coda in the way that you mm. tell it, which I find really heartbreaking in one way, is that because you say at the end of it that um, uh, the... After, after Slippers dies, you say, my sadness at the loss of my dog is proof that, in spite of being a guardia, I feel pain. <laughs> and, and the people treat you differently because of that. And it seemed to me that this was a terrible indictment of white people, that this, the black people there saw you as incapable of feeling emotion on some level until, until something awful like that happened. I don't think it's an indictment. I just don't think, I mean, apart from just, you know, the, the, certainly the people, the Aboriginal people I, I know out there, they need to know what the whitefellas are doing because, you know, they tend to be running everything and controlling a lot of the money and so on. But in every other way, they're not actually very interested, you know. We're just a resource, you know. We're not interesting as individuals until something happens where you surface because people often don't stay for very long either. Um, and I think, you know, there's the flip side, a lot of it, you know, it was always the notion that Aboriginal people didn't feel pain the way white people did physical pain. Cuts both ways, you know, I mean, they are just as kind of insular in a sense around their own culture, their culture and, and you know, um, it's, and also like a white fella has to stick around for quite a long time before people bother to invest anything in them because, yeah. you know, why, why waste you know, why waste your energy if they're going to be gone in six months? So I think it's it's both simpler and more complex than the notion that, um, because, you know, whitefellas are always ranting and screaming and spitting the dummy. It's obvious that they feel things, you know, but most of the, most of the Aboriginal people is like, they just get out of range, you know, watching somebody melt down. So they certainly, um, but I think the... I think the fact that I was very attached to my dog and people are very attached to their dogs, you know, that, that made sense in a way that, you know, screaming and ranting in the office and throwing bits of paper around doesn't make sense. So, yeah. so the, when you first went out there, the reason you went out was because of a connection with the Balgo Art Centre, is that, is that correct? Uh, no, I first went back after my dad was killed in the helicopter mustering accident, okay. so I just felt like I had, I mean, you know, my parents made the decision to leave the Tanami, I was still at university, none of us, you know, my siblings were still at school, we didn't have a say, you know, um, 
we left suddenly left this place that we're all very attached to, and uh, and I just felt um, after my dad died that I needed to go back and make sense of it, um, and I so that's what took me back in the early 90s. Uh, I then continued to go back sort of as an artist, and then in 2001, some friends of mine were running the Balgo Arts Centre, and by this stage, I thought I'd like to spend some time out there. It was actually a really easy way to do it. It was like just being a volunteer at the Arts Centre. You had a job to do, a place to be. You could sort of dip in and out, you know? So initially, that was why I did it. Uh, And then that led to me being invited to come back to Mullon, which is a much smaller community, about 50 kilometres west of Valgo, which was families who'd worked for my... The, the, the fathers had worked as stockmen for my family. So so it was sort of those... Um, uh, they, they saw me as a potential person who could be persuaded to come and work on projects with them. And my initial response was, I don't want to do this. I know it will kind of swallow my life, you know. Um, and I had actively said no, and then one of the stockmen had he died, you know, he was 60, and I realised that the generation that I knew and knew me was going to die early. People tended to do that, um, and that if I really wanted to keep a connection, a genuine connection to the country, I needed to go back and be there in a very different way from trailing this kind of slightly... Um, idealised history of, you know, growing up on a cattle station, etc. You know, that world had changed. Um, most of the stations, including, you know, the, the ones that had been across, across the border, was all Aboriginal land again. It's like things were really different. And so I said yes, and it stole my life. I hate my life, you know. It did swallow. 20, it. 20 years on, I'm still going back every year. It's, it, it, it derailed my career as an artist, you know. I was doing quite well up till then, so um, I just didn't have time to do all the sort of, you know, um, professional sort of, um, um, you know, work you have to do to keep your profile up. I still make work, but I just don't sort of, you know, get out there and sell myself. But you see, it's one of my regrets that we didn't um, make any facilities to kind of project some of your art up here on the, on the wall behind us because there's some... In some of the publicity, in the email that I've sent out in the last couple of days, there's one of, um, one of Kim's paintings there. Um, I, I've used that of a, a horizon... Um, oh, yes. Yep. It, it's a beautiful painting, but mm. it's interesting because you talk about that in one of your essays mm. there, about the idea that in um, ab- a lot of Aboriginal art, the dot painting that was being done there, it's the, the horizon, it's all horizon. Or, can you talk to it? I, didn't, I, I don't know okay. that I can necessarily yep. explain yep. what it is yep. you're talking about yep. here. Okay, so, I mean, and there's an irony about this too because, you know, that sort of desert art was in many ways... Um, kind of became the product of the white market. Um, you know, there's early Balgo art that has horizons in it, you know, um, and it's a, it's a much more, again, complicated story. But certainly when people were painting their country, 
I started to realise they're sitting, you know, they often sit in the middle of the canvas, big canvas, and work around them. And it's like, ah, so, so the horizon is actually the surface they're sitting on. You know, they're sticking up into the, you know, in, into that sort of dimension, but, and, and they're sitting on country. So that's all I meant by that, was yeah. that, the, you know, the, 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 the work is both the, you know, it's the country, but it's also that space, you know, that space between kind of the, what we perceive as, as, as you know, horizon is, is kind of just hovering above the surface yeah. of, the, of the painting, which, you know, they are painted flat. People don't put them up on the wall and paint them. They, they're painted sort of, they, they're sitting on them on the ground. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they put them up and you, you can often say, well, which way up do they go? It doesn't matter, you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, but, and you're, you had this urge after working there for a time to actually kind of go out and, and paint mm. things with mm. a more... With, with more your own perspective, which was one where there was this, the painting is kind of cut by the, by well, the, the, the perpendiculars yeah. or the, well, the I horizontal. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess this, this um, you know, for me what's interesting is, is the interface, you know. I, it's, it's like what is going on at that point of intersection between, you know, the Western white way of seeing and being and the indigenous way of seeing and being. Um, and that was not just about the dysfunction that happens at that interface, it's also about that sort of cultural energy that occurs there. And there's some extraordinary indigenous work that's done that enters that space, you know, which I do write about. Um, but for me, it was like, okay, I want to bring to bear, because um, I trained as a painter, you know, in a classical tradition, um, and it, it, I thought, what, what, what can I bring from that, and also, you know, bring from what I'm experiencing that sort of shimmer and energy that is in the great desert paintings. That you know, I, I kind of sense a lot of the, you know, the old people experienced their environment that way. They experienced it as energy fields, I think, you know, and that's what gets into the great paintings. So it was like, I get that. How do I bring it in without, you know, um, resorting to the imagery that is, you know, the, their Im imagery? And that's, I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of teasing that out. Yeah. And that kind of led you into map making in some way or other. Look, that was almost accidental. Um, I was making, my, you know, I was, I'd always been interested in, in mapping as a sort of metaphoric process. Um, and my own work often incorporated... Can I, can, I, can I interrupt you just for a second there? You know, I was interested in mapping as a metaphoric process. Yeah. Metaphorical. Can we just tease that out a little bit? Um, well, the alternative to, you know, the roadmap that tells you, you know, where you are and where you're trying to go is, you know, the map, the treasure map of, um, you know, in a novel, Treasure Island, there's the treasure map, you know, um, the notion that, if you, you know, there's this secret cache um, and you have to sort of go on a quest and have an adventure in order to sort of unpick it and find it. Um, but also we use the term mapping for all sorts of things, you know. You map your, um, um, you know, you map, well, I map out my writing. Um, you know, I, I sort of construct a set of relationships um, in order to give, to give myself a structure to work with. So, I, I mean, I think, I think mapping lends itself, uh, you know, the, 
the journey, the quest, the you know, they're all a real thing and a metaphor. Yeah. Um, and it just, it, it just sort of, um, I think I just grew up seeing seeing them that way, seeing maps that way. Um, and of course, position doubtful. You know, I mean, I, I knew the title. I knew that would be the title before I ever wrote the book because you know, there's the map my dad took out. You know, aeronautical map on that first trip across the Tanami and scattered through it are all these locations called Position Doubtful because they hadn't been ground truth, you know. They were just somebody had said, some old prospector had seen a, you know, a, a range and he'd said, oh, it's more or less, you know, in this place. And so on the, you know, aeronautical map, there it was, but, you know, it hadn't been surveyed, so the position was doubtful and it was just such a perfect metaphor for, you know, what people are doing out there. <laughs> and, and, but what you've Me done... included. What you've done there, though, is though to kind of take that Western mapping mm. system, which is, you know, according to latitude and longitude, this mm. little hill is here, and gone and worked there with the Indigenous people who are, are there and used their mapping, their energy field, to kind of combine the two into, into the same process. Is that, is that correct? Look, in some ways, in my own artwork, yes, but in the work I'm doing with the, you know, the mapping work I do with Aboriginal people now, it's actually, it's, it's much less glamorous and it's, it's actually, it's quite important to use the, to make them topographically accurate because um, they're being used, they're very large scale canvas painted, hand painted maps, but so they, as an object, they seem to sit between a painting and a map. But they are as accurate, they're accurate enough to be geo-referenced so that they can also be used as a digital document for, say, uh, an Indigenous ranger group that is, you know, they're managing, they're trying to sort of deal with buffalo grass and, you know, camel culls and threatened species and that sort of thing. And they go out and they actually GPS the locations where these things are. Um, I mean, they usually have, you know, ranger coordinators that have those sorts of skills, but people are being skilled up to do that. And it then can be put back on the map. And they, those documents, people, you know, they, they read and recognise the map as a sort of facsimile of country in a way that a printed document just doesn't work. So, so that's sort of... Um, and it also means the whitefellas get it, you know. I mean... It's all there. It's as accurate, you know, they could actually use that map to take them to a place they need to get to. Um, and, you know, you've got to, you've got to kind of um, get the nerdy, you know, the nerdy blokes who need to know everything's accurate on side because they're often the ones that are managing the money and, what you know, the, the grants and things. The Aboriginal mob love the fact that they can talk to their map and tell people, you know, this is our country in a, in a way that is actually being understood. So. But, but also the stories of those places, because yes. it's not just—it's not just that you know this is called you know Jeff's Bluff or something. Mm. It also has an Aboriginal name, and that of Aboriginal course, name came because somebody went past, some ancient figure went past, yeah, and, and yeah. It, 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 you tell, in fact, a, a long story about 
uh, I mean, the, some of the stories are, are particularly kind of gory and sexual. Yeah, that, that yeah, there's this yeah. kind of these sisters, seven sisters, trying mm -hmm. to escape this man who wants mm. to rape them mm. in the in mm. the in the ancient kind of mythological time. It's kind mm. of like Greek myths too, you know. But this guy is chasing yep. them across the country, and each one of these places is where something happened. Mm. Mm. But that, I mean, that that's actually the that was the exhibition, huge exhibition at the. National Museum. I just I worked on on it, um, and uh, particularly interpreted one of the big paintings that the Madhu women had made because I'd worked with them on a previous exhibition, and I knew that they they worked much more closely with a Western mapping um, than a lot of other Indigenous painting. They were already doing it, not to the quite the level of detail of the work I'd been doing with ranger groups, but. They had been working with a couple of scientists around fire programs for many years, so they were already familiar with um, aerial maps, and so you know they did a painting of their the of the area around their community, and it was you could if you knew the place you could see oh, that's the community that gridded bit in the middle is actually the community, um, and those two you know those are the roads and things like that, so. So, um, and the Seven Sisters story kind of just drifted across the corner of it as part of the, you know, they were showing all the plants and animals and fire regimes and, you know, the dreaming stories just kind of intersect and go through it. So, so I was developing a sense of the multiplicity of what a map could do on projects I was working with um, as I was, you know, being invited to make maps about other things. So they just... They've just kept on feeding into each other and informing each other and, you know, it just, it just has a life of its own now. You also were doing other types of art because when you first went out there, and I'm, look, I don't know what the time scale is, but you went out there with uh, your good friend Pam Lofts yep. and mm -hmm. you were doing, uh, this was, I think it was quite early in the piece, you were doing uh, uh, interesting work there out around the Sturt River and along some of the salt lakes mm -hmm. there. And Pam was very interested in uh, taking photographs mm. that would somehow or other dispel the myth of the masculine explorer. Mm. Mm. So she had you kind of dressing up in wonderful um, flowing skirts and, and high heels and things like that uh, uh, to take pictures of you standing in a, in a rotting boat on the edge, edge of the lake. You were quite reluctant. There was a part of you kind of liked this, there was a part of you didn't like it. <laughs> well, I don't wear flowing skirts and high heels in my ordinary life, you know. It's like the only images of me doing it are out in the middle of, you know, the Tanamine on a salt lake. Um, Pam had her own very particular take on that world, you know, and it was different from mine. She was quite critical in some ways of my, you know, I still had quite a strong sort of um, connection to the, 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 the white cattle people, you know. I, I, I knew that world. I also knew that a lot of the Aboriginal people had a heavy investment in their own identities as stockmen and so on. I knew that it was not this simple, you know, the white guys came out and stole the country, you know. Um, it was, I mean, there was that too, but it was, it was not perceived in those kind of simplistic terms. Um, and so, so Pam was bringing very much that sort of 80s feminist, colonial, post etc. And I just get claustrophobic about isms in general. You know, I just have a natural sort of resistance to 
um, polarities, I guess. Yeah. I'm much more interested in what's going on, you know, what, what's happening that sort of goes against the grain. So, so there was a part of me that was just like, yeah, I'm not going to dress up for your political purposes. But there was also something so sort of hilariously inappropriate and seductive about putting on a satin cocktail skirt and a pair of high heels and, you know, strutting across the Salt Lake. Um, and, and the things, the interesting thing is that the photographs in some ways undermined what Pam was trying to say because the surrealism in them just was that next level. So, so, uh, and I was, of course, I was writing at the time too. So when we first exhibited the work, I had these little, little pieces, little sort of poetic fragments that were part of the process, which kind of played against what she was trying to do. But it was, it was. I think, I think both of us. Um, it was great that we had such a different approach to it because we were constantly. I mean, we were very good friends, and we, you know, we many many nights of talking around the campfire. Um, so that I think it. I think both our practices were really enhanced by the fact that we had this this sort of slight kind of you know scratchiness around it as well yeah i mean you have this lovely comment that you make about it that you, you, you when you were younger on the cattle station you had noted that what the, the change in attitude of men when you put on a skirt mm, mm. and the, the attention that it brought, mm. just this simple thing, just mm. inst- I took off my jeans and put on a skirt, suddenly mm. I'm the centre of attention. Mm. And it Mind was... you, there weren't any other 16-year-old girls around in the desert at that time, white ones, so, you know, there wasn't a lot of competition. And, and, and <laughs> you said that, that in some ways it was too easy. Yeah. There was something about it that that, that yeah. was what yeah. made you discomfort with it, was it was too easy. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I just thought there was something very telling going on there, some, yeah. something... Yeah fascinating about that. Mm, mm. Yeah, I guess to, you know, uh, and I was also, of course, going to boarding school at the same time, so I had these two very different worlds, you know, boarding school in the 60s, you know, um, and miniskirts and so on, and then out to the Tanami and put on the riding boots and, you know, um, um, get out in the stock camp and to sort of navigate that world and realise that, you know, in as a young woman in the desert, uh, in that world, um, you know, you to be taken seriously, you had to be able to do what the guys did, but never ever complain, you know. Um, and watching people like my mother, highly intelligent woman, you know, hostage to the homestead, being patronised by halfwits, you know, <laughs> male halfwits. It's like I'm not going there. So yeah, um, yeah it's probably marked me for life. I think. But. And look, I'm kind of aware of the time and I want to leave some time for questions from the audience because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of them. But I, I just wanted to refer to the last essay in the book, Bringing Your Mother Up here, mm-hmm. because it's, it's a very beautiful essay, Searching for Mushrooms. I wondered, could you talk to that about your mother and about that essay a little bit? Well, I guess, you know, I mean, my, my relationship with my dad took up so much of my sort of early life and, and I dedicated a whole book to him. It, it seemed that, um, you know, I, I mean, my mum's influence as I got older, um, I started to understand what a, you know, what an important sort of role she'd played in our lives and... Um, 
you know, it just felt like the right... I wanted to pay homage. And, of course, you know, the title of the book, Wandering with Intent, you know, Looking for Mushrooms, is a form of wandering with intent, that way of being in, in a place with the, you know, there's a reason, which is the looking for mushrooms, but you don't actually have to find them, you know, it's just a, it just gives you the reason to be out there. And, you know, my mum often talked about her mother and how much, you know, my mum had loved as a kid going out in the sort of paddocks around the little West Australian town. And then, you know, that was passed on to me and that it was a sort of um, kind of underpinning to the other experiences I'd had of, you know, being out wandering with, you know, Aboriginal people as a little kid, but that my mum's... Um, um, I, again, I guess it's a metaphor, you know, to wander with intent. I mean, to write in a way, particularly to write an essay, is to wander with intent yes. um, through ideas and sort of possibilities. So, um, and of course, as I write in the essay, you know, I found her unpublished manuscript because she wrote and published quite a lot and was a very good writer, but it was her sort of un, her inadvertent accidental career as a school teacher. And, um, you know, a lot of it's hilarious. You know, she was a really good writer. And, uh, but I, you know, I started reading the voice and I think, oh, this, this is spookily familiar, this kind of, um, I, you know, I could, I could see my own voice in there. You know, the humour, the kind of amusement at the cross-cultural absurdities that she found herself in, you know, when she first went out herself to the desert. Um, a kind of, I look in retrospect and there's a certain sort of robustness about just getting on with things and not taking yourself too seriously that has probably stood me in very good stead in, you know, the last couple of decades of what I've been doing. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, look, that's probably enough for me for a minute. Let's, let's see if anyone's got something they'd like to ask you about here. I've got lots more questions if you don't, but I'm sure you've got some things you'd like to know about. Yep, Carolyn has a question here. Can I see any other hands going up for people wanting to ask things? Yes. Kim, I love your book and your mother's book. I'm just wondering if you could give me some tips on how when I'm speaking to a friend who's wavering on yes, no, on the voice, how I could best present my view. So which what is, is a, your which view? Which is a yes. <laughs> Before I tell you. Yeah. Um, look, I guess it, it, yes has plenty of complexities. It's not going to be you know, it's not going to be a silver bullet, it's not going to necessarily, there may be lots of complications, but no will create a sort of obstacle to going ahead in a way that nothing that yes can possibly do. So to, to, to vote no, I think, would send a message of such sort of um, negativity and it would, it, it, no matter what, no matter how complicated a yes sort of vote produces, a no vote is going to be infinitely worse. So, you know, it's, it's that's my view. And that's a short answer. I mean, 
if I might just add to that, what we were talking about before um, at lunchtime, it, it's just the white community in Australia have been invited mm. Mm. by the yeah. black community yeah. Yeah. To, to, yeah. to walk together yeah. and to turn around and say, well, I'm not going to, is, is such an insult. Well, the argument that, um, you know, there are all sorts of other better ways of doing it and so on, it's like, well, why haven't we all done it already in that case, you know? Yeah. So, dang, there was a gentleman there. I call her Dying because she's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hi. Um, I spent a year on a remote community, a much more saltwater-facing one um, off uh, on Groot Island uh, back in the early 90s, and I, I was just consoled having read your essay today that the characters there in the desert were almost a facsimile of the characters <laughs> in that community on Groot Island. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was incredibly enjoyable. Thank you. Hello. What would, you what would you consider to be the message that is your legacy? Wow. Um, do I have a message? Um, I guess uh, I to 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 have. There are no easy solutions. It's a space of discomfort. Um, that intercultural space. Um, I think to always see it as a deficit, as 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 you know problems to be solved doesn't... I mean, there are problems that need to be solved, but that, that's not at the heart of it. Um, that it's just something that, you know, we get on with... This, this is... It's happening all over the world, you know. There was an era when colonialism happened. People did those things. It was considered what you did back in the day. We are now reaping, you know, the the sort of historic sort of effects of that and it's just, you know, you work with it and you keep moving through it. Um, forming just strong relationships, genuine relationships with people where it makes sense. I mean, you can't really, you know, I don't think as a white person you can sort of go out and, you know, hound some poor Aboriginal person to be your friend, you know. There's kind of got to be a reason. Um, but look, I guess I still feel that it's what makes us unique in Australia that we have the, this, you know, we have these these sort of cultures meshing together, and for all the sort of complexity and difficulty, there's also extraordinary outcomes. Um, but beyond that, look, I, I don't know that I have a message really. I just go, go out there, I observe. I've always been interested in just trying to work out what's going on and then write as well as I can about it. Um, if there are messages, I think people take different messages from what I write, but um, I'm not entirely sure that they're what I intend. Oh, yeah. Hi. Um, I watched a show once where an archaeologist um, dug up some bones in, um, I think it was in southern Britain, and they could tell the actual uh, origins of the people by the minerals that were in the bones. 
and uh, whether they were Spanish or uh, of another culture, um, I think Northern European. Um, I just wanted to, you made a comment about how you'd gone out as a, um, and been raised by the um, local uh, Indigenous person rather than your mother and held. I guess it's a kind of um, nostalgic question. What, what evokes that in your bones? What, what from a poetic or artistic uh, language could you use to describe that? Not a political one. I guess there are still moments um, where, and they are—they tend to be—and they're, they're they're fewer and fewer these days because there are fewer and fewer of those sort of older people, you know, who who grew up in the desert, left, um, and certainly the ones that I've known well um, have. There's not too many of them left now, but to just be out with a couple of those sort of, you know, those women the level of just ease of being with them in the country, that, that those are the moments. Um, and they, they sort of are an extraordinary counterpoint to all the times when it's really not very comfortable, when you know, there's all sorts of reasons that that, uh, that can be the case. So, so I guess it's just that feeling of familiarity and being at home, um, which is a pretty simple thing, but yeah. Um, Kim, I just wanted to ask you about country. Um, we were talking a few days ago about the referendum and that, and um, an Aboriginal friend there um, said, why, why don't they put country in the constitution? And that seemed like a really cool idea to me, but I wondered if you could comment on what country in that sense means to your your Aboriginal friends in the Tanami and what it means to you, having grown up there, and is it different? Yeah, it is different. Um, I think it's... I, I, think it, I think the way it manifests is not that different, actually. I think what one actually feels as an individual um, isn't that different, because I think, you know, um, it's the time spent in your own life on, a you know, on a sort of beloved piece of country, you, you become very, you know, you feel it in a very sort of profound way. Um, but I guess with the, a lot of the people I spend time with are still on the country that is their own country. So that's quite different from, uh, you know, from, from sort of other situations. And, um, gosh, how, do I, how, do, how would I explain it? Um, the sense of identity of, um, and they're quite small areas too, you know, it's, it's, it's like somebody will, to revisit where they were born, um, that is actually, you know, the source of their identity and there will be some, you know, some ancestral entity in that place that is, you know, they identify with. And, and that's quite extraordinary that the sense of there's this animating being, it might be a water snake or... or um, you know, mosquito or something, <laughs> and um, and that's their that's their sort of totem. They're dreaming, um, and that's a very real thing. The f 
the downside now, and I see this more and more and more, is um, because you know country has become a commodity as well, um, and to be able to identify you come from a place, mining is huge out there, so you know royalties are a really major source of, of income. And, you know, um, native titles identified certain people as belonging to country and others not belonging. Um, and there's a, you know, that's, that causes all sorts of problems and difficulties. So, so there's a very um, kind of, uh, in a sense, banal but, but damaging aspect to, you know, the fact that if, if you know, your country belonging to country also gives you this financial advantage and this person who believes that they also should have access to that. So there's a, you know, that this is tearing communities apart. It's a, it's a huge issue, actually. Um, but it's, it's still... Um, and people are sort of... People who are not any longer living on the country, like at Balgo has about seven different language groups and it's been interesting over the, gosh, 80, 90 years, I guess, that's been established, um, how they've made that their country. So it's a, it's a sort of a complex, movable thing. It's not one simple thing, you know. Um, and, I, yeah, that's the best I can answer, really. Can I pick you up on, on that for a minute? Because... You're saying that this this business with who is granted native title mm. on mm. places is good. Do you see a way of resolving that? Is there is there some? I'm not saying some simple answer, but is there some resolution of that possible? Not that I can see. No. no. So it's just going to continue yep. ripping people apart. I think so. Yeah. I mean, people may work stuff out, you know. Um, some places do it better than others, but it's a long way from that. It's, yeah, I, I really don't have... I, I don't have answers. I think this may be becoming very obvious. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't expecting you to have an answer. I just was yeah. just wondering, because that that, that is a, a matter of great concern, if, because it, it means that, you know, the very best intentions of of Western society to try and um, recognise and acknowledge people is actually causing more mm. damage than it, mm. it... Well, I don't know, more damage, but it's causing... It's not, not offering any kind of solution. There are people, uh, Aboriginal people, who would say that native title... You know, before native title, everybody got along fine and native title forced people to, you know, claim a certain area as theirs and it meant others couldn't... Um, but, I mean, a good example of, of what I'm talking about would be I worked for quite a long time with the various uh, language groups that identify as being connected to Lake Mungo. Now, there's a huge amount of prestige attached to the Mungo story um, and the different language groups all consider that... Well, there's one particular group that consider they are the actual real ancestors and no one else is either there's you know nothing makes yeah there's been so much sort of that's been the things that have tried to be developed over the last 30 years there and and nothing gets anywhere because these different groups are all you know much more invested in making sure the other guys don't get anything than seeing something 
productive coming out of it. Um, and it's really hard work to work with that stuff, you know, because people are always trying to get you to take their side. And, you know, this is where the mapping becomes very complex because I would say, well, you know, I have to... Everybody's got a right to tell their story. Um, it's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite sort of... Um, you know, it makes you very conscious of the damage that exists in people and, you know, how ongoing it is um, and how it underpins their lives. But I don't see... I, yeah, I mean, I think it's still a long way off until those things get sorted and, you know, people have to work it out for themselves. So we're going to wind up, but I just want one more question, just if, if I may, please. You're about to set off again mm -hmm. um, in your Toyota Hilux mm -hmm. dual cab with your mm -hmm. Jack Russell. Yep. Yeah, I have a Jack Russell now. My dog number four is a Jack Russell, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> so, and, and what, do, what, what are your plans for the, for the next couple of months? Uh, we drive to Alice Springs and then um, head out to a... It was, was a cattle station who the family who owned it I know from my childhood. It's been purchased by the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. They want to develop a co-management plan with the traditional owners who are mainly Walpri. And so I'll be making a map with them. Um, the, the, I guess the point with the mapping is the, it's to get... It, it starts with putting the Aboriginal story down. So even though it's topographically accurate, the first information that goes on is what the Aboriginal people want on that map. Um, which can vary from cultural information to, you know, just knowledge of plants and animals, etc. So I'll be doing that, then up to Mataranka to follow on. It's the third round of working with some people up there whose um, land is some, you know, potentially has some farming capacity. So it's um, brokering a relationship with, you know, someone might want to have a mango farm on their land or whatever. So, so it sort of equalises the, the conversation about, you know, what's already there, you know, that mango farm, it may be on land that's suitable, but, you know, it's a good thing to know if there's a dreaming track or the, you know, the storm bird flies down through there. And most people are really keen to know that, you know, people that are investing in place, there's a, you know, it's often it wasn't willful ignorance, it was just ignorance and, you know, once people actually understand that those things are already embedded in the landscape, there's often a willingness to, you know, honour it and sort of, you know, have the conversation. So, uh, and then I've just got kind of more of the same in various different places. <laughs> well, you know, all the strength to you. Thank you so much for coming to, taking the time to come to Milani to speak to us. Well, thank, thank you all for coming. <laughs>